Amen. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you all. Um, so I'm going to do two messages today, part one in this morning service and part two in the afternoon service, all right? So they'll, they'll both be up on um, YouTube if you want to watch them. And I'm going to talk, um, go through a couple of verses in the book of uh, Zephaniah. And um, it was quoted earlier, but going a bit verse before that. So Zephaniah 3.16. We noticed how all the 3.16s in the Bible seem to be quite cool. I don't know why. But um, so Zephaniah 3.16. And it says, In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear. To Zion, do not let your hands be slack. I'll move on to verse 17. Uh, the Lord your God is mighty. In your midst, he will deliver. He will rejoice enthusiastically over you with joy. He will rest in his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Now, just to give this, the, the, these verses some context, so uh, I don't go off on a pretext, but the context of this particular passage is the restoration of Israel at the end of days when Messiah returns. When Messiah returns, he's not coming to London, he's not coming to New York, he's coming to Israel and he will set up his rule and dominion from uh, Mount Zion. And, uh, and so here it says that, in that day it will be said to Jerusalem, do not fear to Zion, do not let your hands be slack. And so here the Lord is now ruling and reigning over Mount Zion, over the nations. Israel's in a place of universal peace and happiness and joy because finally the Messiah has arrived, etc. So that's the context of this passage. However, I want to take it and sort of prophetically make it relevant to where we're at today and a message that I believe God wants to bring. Obviously, do bear in mind that these messages are not just for us sat in the room, but they go out wider afield. I say that because I believe this is, um, uh, these couple, these, these two messages I'm going to give today are relatively things that need to be said, I think, in, in the current state of affairs in Great Britain. Hallelujah. So, in that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, do not fear to Zion, do not let your hands be slack. So, I want to start off by looking at the word Jerusalem, okay? Now, Jerusalem means the city of peace, and it's made up of a word uh, called Shalem, and Shalem, Jerusalem, uh, comes from the word, well, it's Yerushalayim. So, let me start with the, the Hebrew word, Yerushalayim. Anything that ends in the two, last two letters, I-M, im, is plural, like cherubim, seraphim, etc., okay? So, the city of peace is actually literally called in the Hebrew, the cities of peace. Anyway, why, is it, why is it plural? Why is it called the cities of peace? Because brothers and sisters, you know, you know how you get certain countries in Britain, it said not countries, uh, sort of counties, and it says this village or this county is twinned with somewhere in Paris or France or whatever, yeah? It's the same with Jerusalem. Jerusalem is twinned with heaven. Why? Where are you getting that from? Because we know there's a Jerusalem in heaven. We know there's a Jerusalem on the earth. We know there's a Mount Zion in heaven. Yeah, where does it say that? Hebrews 12, 22. We know there's a Mount Zion on the earth. We know God the Father is ruling from Mount Zion in heaven. We know that Jesus, when he returns, will rule from Mount Zion on the earth. We know that God the Father is in Jerusalem in, in, in heaven. Jesus will rule over Jerusalem on the earth. God the Father is ruling over the promised land in heaven. Jesus will rule over Israel and all the nations from heaven. So we see this parallel, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it's being done in heaven. Hence why the name Jerusalems, literally the cities of peace, is because they're twinned with each other and the, the, the earth should mimic the heavenly. Why, why, why then, you have to ask the question, why, why, why is Jerusalem the most contested piece of real estate in the world? 
Now, why is there so much wars and fightings and so much consternation over that little strip of land? Because that's where Jesus is coming back to. And that's why the Antichrist, and I don't like that translation, Antichrist, it's not quite correct. In the Greek, it's pseudo-Christ. What that means is someone who acts like him, someone that talks like him, someone that does stuff like him, someone that has power like him. So in all intents and purposes, the Antichrist, which is really the pseudo-Christ, is one that looks like Jesus, acts like Jesus, and is a kind of Messiah, but absolutely, most definitely, is not Jesus. Amen? And so it, that's why, in the, according to the book of Thessalonians, that he will set up his image and he will be worshipped in the temple of God. Okay, on, uh, in Jerusalem. Why? Because he wants to be Christ, but he's a pseudo-Christ, and we know how that will all end. But anyway, this is why these things are important. This is why Christians need to get it when it comes to Israel. Okay, Israel is God's land. Jesus is coming back. He's not coming to London. He's not coming to New York. He's not coming to Milan. He's coming to Israel, and he's coming to rule from Israel over the nations, as the Jewish king, okay, over the world and the nations. And, and there's nothing in the Bible that will contradict that in any way. So in that day, it will be said to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is the city of peace. So uh, just get into a little bit of uh, etymology here, the root meaning of the word. So Shalem in the Hebrew is linked, obviously, with the word shalom. I say obviously, you might not know that. So Shalem means to make whole or complete and to make restitution. Okay? Shalom means wholeness, completeness, and peace. Now, if Jerusalem... Now, I, I don't believe in replacement theology. I don't believe the church has replaced Israel. However, I do need to say this just for the sake of today, that every church locally, nationally, internationally should be like a Jerusalem on earth. It should be a city of peace. It should be a city of refuge. It should be a place where people can come where they can uh, experience wholeness, where they can experience restitution and restoration, where they can experience love and the peace of Christ. Yeah? That the church should actually be, although it often isn't, it should actually be in a, a, a kind of a, just a little taste of heaven on the earth. Actually, yeah? And some of you look at me going, hmm? Yeah, of course it is. We are the body of Christ. We, according to the scripture says, we have received the Holy Spirit, which is the first down payment of the age yet to come. In other words, what we have should give the world uh, just a hmm or a scent of something that is to come, of the kingdom yet to come. Amen? So yes, we should be reflecting something of the kingdom of heaven down here on the earth. I know that church can be a contentious place and it can get rather ugly sometimes. But nevertheless, yeah, even in that mess, there should still be the goodness of God manifest amongst the people. There should be the power of God in the church again. Amen. Are we tired of, of Christianity without any power? Amen. amen. I want to see power in the house of the, God, house of the Lord. Amen. We'll see people set free, demons cast out. You know, normally when we have to do demons casting out, we have to do it somewhere privately and quietly. But the day will come where you, you won't be able to preach sometimes because all the demons coming out, you know. Uh, and some people here have seen that. You know, they've seen being in, in the early days when God was moving across this, off, over this nation, where God did some wonderful things. And God wants power to come back to the church again. But you see, the church cannot have power and cannot be a city of Jerusalem unless... It has a Mount Zion. 
You see, Jerusalem without Mount Zion is just like any other city. Really? What is special about Mount Zion? I did a lot of teaching on this a while back. I did the blueprint for the End Time Church, which is on our YouTube channel, and talked about the, the restoration of the tabernacle of David. And so the Ark of the Covenant for a 40-year period, 40 period was placed on Mount Zion with like a tent around it, and it was known as the Tabernacle of David, whilst the Tabernacle of Moses was just down the road, and Zadok the priest was ministering in there, but David had all these priests, and they were offering praise and worship before the, before the Ark of the Covenant, where everybody could see it, which was not permitted, and, uh, and, and there was a 40-year time, well, between 37 to 40 years, where the presence of God manifests, because that's what the Ark of the Covenant represent, represented, was available for all to come, to praise, to worship, to adore, and to fall down before. What else does the Ark of the Covenant represent? Well, it represents the manifest presence of God. But what's in the Ark of the Covenant? The Word of God. So you have the stone tablets upon which the law was written. Okay, so you have the Word of God. Who is the Word of God? Sunday school answer, Jesus. Okay, what else did it contain? It contained a jar of manna. What's manna? Bread from heaven. Who is Jesus? Bread from heaven. Okay, right. What else did it have in there? It had the staff that uh, had the, 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 the buds that came out of it to show that the line of Aaron were to be priests. Who is Jesus? He is of the order of Melchizedek. He is the high priest. Okay, so when we're talking about bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem on Mount Zion again, we are talking about making Jesus the centrality and the focus and the Word of God, the authority and the power for our church in these days. But you see, it's all very well bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, but where was the Ark of the Covenant just before David brought it into Jerusalem the second time round? It was in the house of a Gentile called Obed-Edom. And I've talked about that. In case you, I didn't know he was a Gentile. Yeah, check it out. He, he actually is a Gentile. It was of the tribe of Gittite. And Gittites have got nothing to do with the Hebrews. It's to do with the Philistines. And uh, Goliath was a Gittite. Okay, so it's interesting. So the Ark of the Covenant was in Obed-Edom's house. Okay. And there something happens. It, it, the blessing of God fell upon Obed-Edom's house. I mean, that guy was so blessed. If you read the scriptures, that his children were blessed and the generations of Obed-Edom were blessed, okay? So why am I saying this? Because, brothers and sisters, if we're going to see God move again in our churches, it ain't going to happen unless you have got the Ark of the Covenant in your own house. Amen? If you are not living for, uh, a life where Jesus is the center of your life, where the word of God is the authority in your life, where Jesus is the, pre the high priest of your household, if you, haven't that, if you haven't got that going on down in your house, then don't expect to see it in church. We, have, we are all these little wonderful links that form together to make a powerful chain. That's the body of Christ. We are the church. Amen? But if individually we are slothful, as it says here, do not let your hands be slack. No, I can't be bothered. I don't want to be all out for Jesus. I just want to be like kind of middle of the road for Jesus, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I don't really want to go full out for Jesus because, you know, I don't want people to think I'm weird or something. I just want people to like me and accept me. I don't care. You know, I don't care what the world thinks of me. 
you know what? I gave up trying to be normal years ago. I tried so hard, and the more normal I tried to act, the more weirder I seemed to be to everybody. So in the end, I thought, well, I'm just going to have to resign myself to the fact that I am a weirdo, deal with it, live with it, and everyone else is just going to have to put up with it, okay? I'm happy now being a weirdo. I'm not going to apologize for it anymore. I just am who I am, and that's it. You know, nothing I can do about it. But what I do want to know, being a weirdo for Christ, is that I want to be known as a holy roller, a Jesus freak, someone that's all out, that gave his life passionately for his Lord and for his saviour. Amen? I want everybody to know that Chris Wickland was a Jesus freak. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. Amen. (laughs) Because what else is there? What is there in this life that's worth laying down your life for? What else is there worth being passionate about and spending all your time and money on? I know what some of you think thinking, well there's golf. No, it's Jesus. I don't care if you play a game of golf and you enjoy it, but actually it's Jesus, okay? Not golf. Hallelujah. In that day, I said to Jerusalem, do not fear to Zion. And Zion is so important because it's about getting God back into the church again. And when we have Jerusalem with Mount Zion within it, this means we have the word of God and Jesus and the bread of heaven back in its rightful place. And the tabernacle of David in its day on Mount Zion represented a worshipping people, a praying people. Okay, the church today is, you know, we're good on worship in some circles, but we're not really good at praying. Do you know what? There's a special dispensation on corporate prayer. Jesus said, when two or more are gathered together in my name, and it's got nothing to do with church, it's got everything to do with prayer, it's the context. When two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them, as high priest in my power of agreement so that those prayers will be given to God the Father because without a high priest your prayers will never get answered okay so Jesus is coming in the midst of them there's a special dispensation on corporate prayer over me, myself, I and Jesus that's not to say your own prayers aren't blessed because Jesus is still with you and never fail you or forsake you and he's with you to the end of the age but there is a special dispensation on corporate prayer there really is and the fact that Jesus stamped it like that saying hey Two or three or more gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Okay. This is why it's important that the church prays corporately as well in these days. And uh, something I think God wants to bring back to the house of the Lord. And you might think, well, we do have corporate prayer meetings. Yeah, but they only have like about five people in them. For those at home, it went very quiet in the room. Um, Prayer is one of the most important things that we can do. It is our weapon. It is everything that we are. We are, we are a priesthood, hallelujah. And so without Mount Zion in the midst of the church, then Jerusalem is just an ordinary city. And we have churches today, let's be honest, that don't preach the word anymore. They're more interested in uh, um, the political agendas of the day whether it's um, uh, gender ideology or whether it's, you know, um, environmentalism and stuff. And we've seen some denominations really go off the deep end with this stuff to the point where they're now creating liturgy so that's, that looks Christian, but it's all based around environmentalism and inclusivity and all of these kind of things. And so we have a form of religion that denies the power thereof. Isn't this one of the signs of the end of the age? Do you know what excites me? Is that... It could be maybe within 40 years' time that this scripture will be fulfilled in your hearing. That Jesus could be ruling and reigning from Mount Zion. And some of you go, well, 
you know, things aren't really that bad, Chris. You know, is it really the end of the age? Do you know what? I was speaking to a Muslim the other night at a restaurant. And do you know what he said to me? This is a Muslim. He said to me, oh, you know what we, we Muslims are expecting? I said, what's that? He says, we're expecting Jesus to return, your prophet. And he says, Jesus will return and he will usher in a reign of peace and all religions will come under, under this one religion that Jesus espouses and there will be universal peace. And he said, you know why I believe that Jesus is coming back soon? I said, no. He said, because the absolute mess that this world is in. That's a Muslim. He's more spiritually awake than the church. Most Christians are like, oh, I don't think he's coming back anytime soon. You know, I've got things to do. I've got golf to play and stuff. And I mean, I know, I've got things to do. But people just don't have any idea. They have no concept that we might even possibly be at the end of the age. You know, it talks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I believe, it talks about the restrainer that's basically holding back the law, the one of lawlessness. And I hear of lots of different theories about that. You know, some say it's the church, and some say it's the Holy Spirit and stuff. Unfortunately, the Greek won't allow that because it's just to get a bit technical. The Greek is a gender neuter. Even though it's a he, it, it has to be put in the context of what the preceding verses are about. So the Holy Spirit is never, never referred to as a gender, he, as a neutered he or a neutral he. Never, unless the preceding verses state that it's the Holy Spirit. And I think it's the same with the church as well. I'm not quite sure, but I'll have a check on that. But definitely with the Holy Spirit. Why is this relevant? Because that passage where it talks about that the, the, the one that's restraining... Uh, and when the restraining one is removed, then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Um, that has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. And it has nothing to do with the church. It's not the context of the passage at all. So the Greek will not allow it. So if you're trying to say, no, this is what it means, the Greek will not allow it. Yeah? Anyone, like uh, people that I know of who are Greek lexiconographists or whatever they're called, what's the term? No, anyway, people who really understand the, the process of Greek and New Testament Greek. They say you can't, you just won't work. You cannot say that it's those two things because the Greek will not allow it. So it's obviously referring to something else. The early church fathers thought that that passage was referring to the restrainer was a sense of law, which may come about through government uh, that was holding back the lawless one. But let me tell you something in this day and age, okay? I kind of see this restraining thing like a veil. And that veil was thick once upon a time when righteousness ruled over our nation. But now righteousness is almost gone. It is almost gone. Not even the church stands up for righteousness anymore. I even do have to say this. What on earth are some churches preaching? What is their gospel? And what is Jesus saving them from? If there is no sin anymore because everything that you do is good and we love you and it's all soft and cuddly and warm. What is the power of the gospel? Jesus died on a cross to save us from our sins. Jesus died so that he could destroy the works of the devil. And if we no longer think there are acts of darkness and deeds of evil anymore, then what on earth is it that we're doing? Churches have stopped dealing with the demonic now. Just, just don't do it. We, we're the, probably the only church in the whole area that gets people coming here for, for ministry for that kind of stuff. And it, it shocks me. It's like, what is going on in Christendom? Why are we not dealing with these things? Well, we'd, we'd, we'd rather do counselling now, because that's what we think it is. You know, it's all, there's no such thing as demons, we just do counselling. I'm being sarcastic, yes, because it's true. We've replaced the spiritual in our church, and we've completely cut ourselves off from the reality of what's going on around us. So much so that we are blind to the signs of the times. We don't realise how bad it's getting out there. We don't realise that that veil of righteousness is, is virtually like paper thin. And the man of lawlessness will soon come through, because the restraining force of righteousness is practically gone from the face of the earth. 
We are living in the end of days. And you might say, oh, Chris, no, 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 no. No, there has never been wickedness and filth and depravity on the earth as ever any other time on the earth's history. We have governments now that call good evil and evil good, okay? That force of restraining the man of lawlessness is virtually paper thin, and it's not going to take much. And also, once that, the thinner that that veil becomes, the more will be satanic power upon the earth. And that's why in the end of days, mankind will be given over to a mass delusion as the Antichrist is finally revealed. We're living in these days. We really are. Now, I don't want to get into arguments whether, because some people are like, oh no, Jesus is coming next week or could be next Friday or, or whether it's 10 years time or 20 years. I don't want to get into those silly arguments, but I do want to put a sense of expectation back into the church again and, and a little bit of a wake-up call. Now, I used to be asleep on a lot of this stuff and have been even till relatively recently, if I'm honest with you. But a long time ago, God gave me this dream and uh, in this dream, I saw Leviathan, and he was like this great serpent, and he was going up and down the channel, and he was trying to get onto Britain, but he couldn't, because he was being restrained. And he was flashing up like lightning fast up and down. He was always trying to get into Britain, but he couldn't. And then on the, on the beach was a Bible, and it was open to the book of Revelation, and hovering above it in 3D letters spinning round was the words, Lisbon Treaty. And then the Holy Spirit shot across the sky and he shouted out, you are so close to the end of days, you need to wake up. And with that, I immediately woke up. I was like, oh. And after that, it kind of set a switch, flicked a switch in my head that actually I need to start paying attention. Because we are living in days. You know what? There is an apostasy in the church, like scriptures have warned and prophesied, the likes I've never seen in all of living history. I know my church history reasonably well. I've studied the early church fathers and things like that. And there were things that were bad in those days. Nothing on the scale and nothing of the size on the things that we're seeing now in our churches. I mean, it's not like I have to, it's not like I even have to go far to find it. I can just go down. I could just walk like a mile that way, a mile that way, a couple of miles that way. And I can find apostate churches everywhere. We are living in the end of days. And you know what? No one, not nobody, but not many people really seem to care. Christians are like, ah, oh, no, no, no. Blood red, blood red lakes and rivers appearing all around the, around the world for no apparent reason. One day they're gone, one day they're there, and then they're gone again. People say, oh, no, it's called red weed. We don't know what it is, where it came from, but just, no, that's what we're going to call it. Or in India, where they had blood falling out of the sky in rain for, for so many days. And when they took droplets of this blood and they put it under the microscope, it had self-replicating DNA appearing in it. It's impossible. This is not the stuff that man can make up. This is not some kind of weird, freaky red weed. This is a divine portent. It's a sign. It's a wonder that the church needs to be aware of. Even the unbelievers know that something crazy is going on and the church is in lukewarm indifference to the signs of the times. I, don't get me wrong, I know it's inconvenient knowing that you could be living at the end of the age. That's not nice to know, is it? No one wants to hear that, but it's true. But, but, then, but then there's a responsibility because if we are the ones at the end of the age, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to work on that, that golf swing more? <laughs> or are we going to set our sails and point our mast and point the boat in a direction that says, you know what? If there's ever a time that my life needs to count for something, 
It's got to be now. And it's got to be, it's got to be this generation. I want to serve the purposes of God in my generation. And yes, I might die an old man and Jesus might not have returned yet. What does that mean? I tell you what it means. It means I gave my life for Jesus and I lived like he was coming back tomorrow and I gave my all for him and I laid down my life for him and I poured it out like a drink offering. And yes, I've got great golf swing as well along the way, praise God, if that's what you want to do. But I gave, I gave Jesus my first. I gave Jesus my best. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Do not let your hands be slack. These are, as it says it, in that day it was said to Jerusalem, do not fear to Zion, do not let your hands be slack. Because brothers and sisters, the church needs to be a place of healing. It needs to be a place where people can encounter the power of God. But one of the things that we need to bring back to the church is men. We have a very effeminate church. This is nothing against women. I'm not being rude to you. I'm not saying that and I'm in no way being chauvinistic in saying that. But our culture in general in the world is an effeminate culture. We don't want to offend everybody. Let's just all get along. Let's just, you know, let's just all, you know. And it's like, we need men. You know, I was, uh, my wife was showing me the other day the, the uh, Catholic hallowed app. I don't know if anyone's seen it. It's like an app, prayer app and stuff. And... Um, I know you're thinking, why would she even be looking at that? But just that's a long story. Anyway, so she was, we're looking at the Hallowed app, and it had uh, Mark Wahlberg and the guy that plays Jesus advertising it. And she was like, what's this? You know, what's this eye candy trying to kind of get me to, to sign up and use this app? And it just dawned on me. It was like, finally, some Christian in marketing has got a brain. They know that they don't want to see an old lady sat next to a bouquet of flowers and a fireside behind her go, use the hallowed app. It will really help develop your Christian faith. They want to see men, good-looking men with muscles on them, people that speak out and say, hey, I'm passionate about Jesus and I'm a man and I'm going to show you that being a man is okay and it's very cool to be a Christian and pray hallelujah, glory be to God. Yeah. Woo! <laughs> Sorry if I'm offending anybody. But I was excited to see, finally, you got some good men. Uh, you know. And I'm not, ta- I'm not eschewing a male chauvinistic kind of manhood either. Because you could be a gentle guy, you could be a demonstrative guy, but you can still be a full-on man for Jesus. Yes. Amen? And I think you see that in the life of Jesus. Jesus, as a man, he, he kind of... He, he, he encompasses the full spectrum of what a man can be. Everything from the gentle guy right through to the let's get it done kind of guy. But whichever end of the spectrum you look... He was a man that was full on for Jesus. And you know, and we, like I said, when the ark starts at Obed-Edom, we need to see men in our houses being spiritual leaders in our houses. And that doesn't mean to say if you've got a demonstrative wife and all that kind of stuff, it's like, oh, she's demonstrative, therefore she... No, it just means you've got a demonstrative wife and you're not. So get over it. You can still be the spiritual head of your household. I'll tell you why you can still be the spiritual head of your household, because you are whether anyone likes it or not. The problem is, is men have been emasculated or emasculated themselves and are not taking up their responsibilities. They're staying at home while the wives come to church. It's not right. I've got, I've got young guys that I know of, young men in their 30s, that don't want to bring their kids to church. They won't come to church and they won't bring their kids to church because they, they don't want to like make them grow up and have a bad example of church. It's like, well, I'll tell you what you're teaching your children then. You are teaching your children a pattern that church doesn't matter to you, therefore it doesn't matter to them, and they will walk in the way that you have taught them and they will not depart from it. Amen? Amen. 
If we don't bring up our children in the ways of the Lord, well, then goodness me, you, you're looking at the next generation because you see, this is how you've got to think. Now, think of yourself. We must think generationally as Christians. What are we sowing to the next generation? What are we leaving behind? Did you know that most churches put most of their budgets into the old people? Okay, middle-aged to old, and hardly anything into the young people, yet most of us sat here got saved when we were young. So, so we have to think generationally. We have to be putting our money and our time into our young people so that they can be the leaders of tomorrow, and they can be passionate for Jesus. And we need good leadership in the church. Now, this can upset a few people. I, I, I have seen good leadership in churches, and I've seen bad leadership in churches. So I know what it's like. And as a leader, I've, I've made mistakes myself as well. But nevertheless, that's how God has deemed it to be. God has said in Corinthians, he talks about, hey, Jesus has a head covering. It's his father. The church has a head covering. It's Jesus. Women have a head covering, which is their husband. And women who are not married must wear a head covering to show their virginity and that they're not under a head covering. That's, that's the cultural, literally, what, what Paul was probably getting at. Okay. So there's a place of, and it says as a sign to the angels. There is spiritual authority in heaven. There are angels, archangels, powers, principalities, dominions, cherubim, seraphim. There is an order to the kingdom of heaven. It's not flat-tiered leadership. Because I'll tell you what happens in flat-tiered leadership in churches. What should we do today? I don't know. What do you think we should do today? What do you think the vision should be for 2024? I don't know. What do you think the vision is for 2024? Do you reckon we need to get a new Hoover for the thing over there? Oh, I don't know if we should get a Hoover. Should we get a Dyson or should we get a thing? I don't know. Have we got the money for it? I don't know whether we should get a Dyson or not. Well, I don't feel particularly... I don't like Dysons. Well, do you like those kind of Hoovers? What about the Hoover made by Hoover? Oh, the Hoover aren't what they used to be. And nothing ever gets done because they just talk and talk and talk. Church needs good, godly leadership. Needs vision. Needs direction. Hallelujah. We don't need soft woolly, candy, uh, fluffy, evangelifish, wobbly, wobbly, wobbly leading churches. We need people that have got a spine and a backbone and a vision and a heart and a passion for Christ. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Sorry if I'm ranting and raving. I'm just being a bit excited today. But anyway. Because, you see, why, why do we need that for this, this time that we're living in? Because the church is in crisis right now. And we have churches that are, quite frankly, there's some, don't get me wrong, there are some really good churches out there. But a lot of churches that are going nowhere. There are a lot of churches that have gone apostate or going apostate and don't even know it. And we've got, we do have churches sometimes run in very woolly, fluffy ways. We, we are, if we are potentially living in the end of days, then we need, we need men and we need women that have got the heart, the guts, and the caliber to do it. And it doesn't matter. You see, I, I'm, I'm reminded of um, Gideon. You know, Gideon, to all intents and purposes, was weak and just nothing in anyone's eyes. But God chose a foolish man who was nothing in the eyes of the world, but he just chose to believe God, and he chose to be obedient to, be, to God, and God used him as a mighty judge in the time of Israel. That gives us hope that in our generation, because you might think, well, God, you know, I've got nothing really to give. No, none of us have. But through Christ, all we need to do is say, Jesus, I'm available. Here I am, send me. Isaiah 6, you know. I mean, how awkward that must that be for Isaiah? He stood in the Holy of Holies, all these seraphim right in front of him, and then Jesus is like saying, hey, who could go for us? Who could, who could send this message to all the people? And it's like, <laughs> me? 
But you have a choice, amen. You can choose what you want to do. He probably didn't. Uh, send me. Okay. So let's all stand to our feet and uh, let's just close in prayer. Lord God, I thank you today, Lord, that you want your church on fire again for you, Lord. You want your people passionate for you again, Lord Jesus. But Lord, you know, some of us might not be passionate because we've been kicked around a bit and we've been bruised and we've been badly damaged or we're just discouraged and stuff. But Lord Jesus, I pray by the power of your spirit, Lord, I pray you fall afresh on us now, Lord, for all of us here right now and for all those watching this. Holy Spirit, I just pray you fall afresh on us all, Lord God. And I pray you give us fresh oil and fresh joy and fresh zeal and fresh fire and fresh passion, Lord God, and fresh love, Lord Jesus. Lord, where we've grown weak and weak need, I pray that you will make us strong by the power of your might, Lord Jesus. Lord God, I pray where we've become passionless and lost our way, I pray you fill us with passion and put us on the way of righteousness for your name's sake. Lord, Holy Spirit, fill us today, we pray. Change us, transform us. Lord, we give you permission, Lord. Use us, Lord God, like you use Gideon, Lord Jesus. Use us, Lord. We're nothing and we're nobody, but with you, Lord God, I can run through a troop. I can leap over a wall. Lord God, a thousand will fall at my side and ten thousand at my right hand, because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world, Lord Jesus. Through you, Lord God, we can do valiantly, Lord Jesus. With you, Lord God, nothing is impossible. Hallelujah. And we give you all the praise and all the glory and all the saints said, Amen. Hallelujah.